I am intrigued by the world's intrigue of books written or movies produced years ago that somehow point to the events of the day. So if you're old enough, you might remember the great intrigue of Orwell's book, 1984, written in 1949, but it prophesies about things that will take place in the future, in the year 1984. And it's intriguing, and I'm intrigued by people's intrigue, of the reality that some of those things actually have taken place, especially similarities in the political realm. Well, today, in the days of coronavirus, some are captured by similarities that have been written about years ago. For instance, there is the 1981 novel uh, written by Dean Kutz called The Eyes of Darkness that actually talks about a killer virus called the Wuhan 400. Yes, it does. Or maybe the movie you've seen, 1995 movie called Outbreak that's getting lots of play on Netflix right now about a virus that arbitrarily jumps from a monkey to a human and spreads across the globe. Or most recently, the 2011 film Contagion that portrays a global epidemic that jumps from animals to humans and spreads across the globe. Now, hear me out. I am not so intrigued by these things as I am intrigued by people's intrigue of them. In fact, I'm, I'm hoping that you haven't already started taking notes on the sermon to try to get the names of those movies or books that you might go check them out. I'm hoping that that's not the thing that you'll take away from the message today, but that you might be intrigued to know that there is a book that predates any of these that accurately tells the story of not only what is happening, what has happened, but what is yet to happen. Are you intrigued? It's a book that a certain author calls Living and active, meaning that while it accurately portrays what happens in its present, it is also accurately at the same time portraying the things that the present provides a shadow of, of a future reality. Put simply, and as theologians like to talk about it, it talks about the now while it shadows the not yet. It talks about a time and space in history while it foresees or foreshadows the reality of something yet to come. That's incredible. And, and, and it's an amazing book. I, I hope you're interested to know what it is. I, I, I hope you're interested. I hope you're leaning in, although I think some of you are on to me, but I hope you're leaning in to, to really know. Rick, tell me what that book is. I want to know what that book is. I want to discover what that book is that talks about the now and the not yet. Well, I'm going to tell you what it is. Are you ready? It's the Bible, yes, some of you were definitely on to me. And, and listen, this Easter, as we approach Easter, we are actually going to turn to what might seem as an unusual place for Easter as we study God's Word. We're going to turn to the Psalms. Uh, some of you might say, well, what could the Psalms possibly tell us about Easter like they were written way before Easter? And I say, yes, that's the, that's the point. They were written thousands of years prior to even the coming of Christ. But the intrigue is that there is a God who has written even the Psalms that talk about the present day of, say, David, as we'll see today, while it foreshadows the not yet of the reality of Jesus Christ. And yes, even the resurrection. So this morning, we turn in that Bible and begin 
in Psalm 2. I'm hoping that you'll turn there with me again. Psalm 2, that's a pretty easy place to go. You open in the middle, you should be in Psalm somewhere, find 2, and there you are. I I want us to see uh, three chapters or three sections of a story told in this psalm that we're going to see historically in the present day uh, with regard to David's life, as it's written, that we'll see prophetically in Jesus' life, and we'll see practically in our lives all in the same text. I, I hope you get that. I, I miss seeing your nodding heads or your glazed over eyes to know whether you're getting it or not. But I, I hope indeed you're leaning in with intrigue to this amazing book called the Bible and specifically to this amazing text this morning, Psalm 2. So I'd like to start in Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3. And as we first take a look at the historical journey of David, see this first chapter, this first section of this text that I call brokenness. If you're at Psalm 2, listen to the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, David wrote this psalm, and so I think it's appropriate to review the story of David to understand where David is in brokenness when he writes these very words. Uh, you know the beginning of the story of David. You learned it as a kid. Some of you on flannel graph. Some of you uh, in just telling the story over and over again. David enters biblical history uh, in a time in which Israel is under uh, a plot of vain from the Philistines, right, to take them over. And so David, just a young boy, is delivering. Uh, bread, food, and fruit uh, to his brothers on the front lines. And there is this army of the Philistines that are casting um, all kinds of insults even at the people of Israel. Uh, One in particular, uh, a giant named Goliath. And no one else is willing to face him, but David does. He, He takes on his insults and says, in the name of God, In the name of Yahweh, I come against you. Not not by my strength, not by my might, but in the name of God. And and you know the story. It's a bit uh, violent in the reality that he takes a stone and and hits Goliath in the head. And he indeed falls to the ground. That's the beginning of this story of David. Kids, you, you, you know that story. Remember that story. Maybe after today you should uh, go back and review that story with your parents and uh, tell it to them. But David later then finds favor then with the king of Israel, a king named Saul. But over time, David becomes more popular than Saul because of his great victories against their enemies. And this made Saul a little jealous and a little angry. And so even Saul begins to press in trying to take David's life. But after Saul died, David was made king of Israel and some of his toughest battles were yet before him. He faced the armies of the, unknown, uh, of the known world who were, were trying to take the land God had promised Israel. And not just the Philistines, but also the Moabites and armies of Syria, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and all kinds of other ites that came against him in the midst of those days. So you see the brokenness that David lives in. You see as he speaks the nations that rage, the peoples who have plotted in vain, the kings of the earth who, who take counsel together against the Lord and his people by taking on his anointed king 
who is David. And those who are literally attempting to rebel against David and ultimately against God. And we see the brokenness of David's world. But then see the chapter I call hope in verses 4 through 9. David, in the midst of this broken world, says this, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So into brokenness comes this chapter of hope. In the midst of the brokenness, I I, I want you to think together with me of what is the perception that David has of a mighty God who sits in heaven seeing this brokenness. Well, the text here in verse 4 says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, it, it would be easy to say that that was pretty rude of God, that he sees all of this and he laughs at them. How, how dare he laugh at them? But the sense here is not a, a rude response as much as how silly it is for him to think of the nations coming against a mighty God. Uh, one commentator has put it like this, It is as if a fly should attack an elephant, or a man endeavor to snatch the sun from the sky. But maybe beyond a um, quote is an illustration. Uh, Aaron, would you you come? I I, want to show you this illustration. I I want you, for the sake of this illustration, to understand that Aaron is God, and I am the nations that rage against him. So this is what it would be, right? Like, he holds me back, and I can't do so. As much as I rage and counsel against him, I can't get him. Now, you, thank you, sir. As you look at that, you chuckle. Right? That's a, that's a silly illustration. It's a silly vision of seeing Mr. Weiss with me trying to get him. But that is the very point that God indeed chuckles. He laughs at nations who try to come against him. It is as if a fly should attack an elephant or a man should endeavor to pull the sun from the sky. The best way that David knows how to portray the response of God to the challenge of the nations is to giggle at how silly the thought is. And quite frankly, that picture brings him hope. And there is nothing, there is nothing that the nations can do that can come against his mighty God and win. But also, also see the seriousness of how God deals with rebellion. When the nations see that they are overpowered and yet still rebel, if, if I was to see how useless it was to fight against Aaron and yet I keep on doing it, God speaks to this in wrath, in fury over rebellion. And he says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, 
my holy hill. God is reflecting back and saying, hey, uh, that, that day that David was anointed as king in 2 Samuel 7, the, the, that my chosen one who is in my power that will win every victory, I have placed him as king on Zion, as king in Jerusalem. Personally, then he goes on to David and, and God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God is saying to the nations of Israel here, though the world seems to be against you, there is no way they can win against me. And know that I have given you David, the king on Zion, my son whom I have begotten. And as a promise, the one that I've chosen as a promise that you will win. Which leads us to the final chapter of the David story in this psalm. I call it the chapter of trust. So we have the brokenness of the nations who rage against him, yet one who sits in the heavens, and just because it's so silly to think of them coming against a God who has established his king on Zion, the one who's his chosen one to, to win the victories, he says, now I call you to this response. In verse 10 of Psalm 2, it says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God says to the world, hey world, if you are smart, kings, if, if you are wise, you will choose to serve the God who always wins. Uh, the psalm says that they should serve the Lord with fear, that they should serve the Lord with respect, they should serve the Lord with reverence, and they would rejoice with trembling. I, I've heard from some of you that you miss my antics, that you miss my pacing back and forth in the do. So th this, is, this is my antics for this message, that this idea of rejoicing with trembling uh, might look something like this. Are you ready? So there is that place of rejoicing, rejoicing with trembling over the reality that God always wins. He says that is to be our response to the reality of the greatness of God, to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And how do the nations do that? The text says they kiss the son. Who is the son in this text? In the day of David, it is David himself, the one who's been established as the one who is the anointed of God. And this idea of kissing him is, is a place of vulnerability to him, a place of submission to him, a place of loyal to him, loyalty to him, and ultimately a place of trust in him. So God says, listen, your response that, uh, of the hope that is in your brokenness is in submission to the leader that I have placed, the anointed that I have placed over you. You want to serve the Lord? Then serve his anointed. And get this, in this place of trust is a blessing. He ends this psalm, blessed are all who take refuge in him. In, in David's day, this is squarely again, David is the Lord's anointed. But we have another story to tell, right? I, I said the intrigue of this story is not only the story of the now of David's day, but the intrigue of this story is that it is a, a messianic story as well. It is a story about Jesus. 
It's a story of David in the now, but a story of Jesus in the not yet. It is a prophetic story of who Jesus is. And I want you to hear that the beginning of the Easter story happens here in Psalm 2. So quickly, let's go through the story again, the different chapters of the story. And as we saw David in the story, let's begin to see Jesus in the story. The chapter of brokenness, a little less than a thousand years later, when Jesus is born into a world that is much the same as the world of David. Remember, God's people have been overrun by the political powers of the day, the Roman government, and the Roman government who rules over the land when Jesus arrives in Bethlehem is still broken. They are still raging. They still plot in vain. They have set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. Jesus is born and immediately has to be taken to Egypt to take refuge because Herod is out to do what? He's plotting in vain to kill him. And 30 years later, as Jesus ministers from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee, uh, healing people, rescuing some from demons, rising some from the dead, and teaching with authority about the things of God, Jesus is persecuted by his own people, and we know the story that he is ultimately crucified. Listen, it's all done in brokenness, in an attempt to burst the bonds of God's ultimate authority and God's ultimate control. There's brokenness. But how does God respond? Well, again, look at the hope of verses 4 through 9. It tells us that even in this place, God laughs. I say to you that while man tries to quiet the voice of Jesus through crucifixion, the voice of God roars in redemption, roars in hope. The very death of Jesus that seems like defeat, listen, is the very place that we as his people find victory. Luther has said, who thought when Christ suffered and the Jews triumphed that God was laughing all the time? Hear the voice of God as he gives hope even in this place of brokenness in the death of his son. He says, as for me, I have set this one as my king on Zion, my holy hill. That king is Jesus. Zion is in Jerusalem, even on the cross. And we find that in Jesus, we have our ultimate hope over not just our enemies, but over death itself. God says of Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Oh, there are so many New Testament parallels to this verse. Jesus as the Son of God, the only begotten one. But maybe what stood out to me as I thought about this text is the prayer of Jesus in John 17, specifically these verses. Jesus asked as he speaks to the Father, as he prays to the Father, as he asks the Father for these things, he says, I do not ask that you take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that you sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. That Listen, for their sake, Jesus says, I consecrate myself, that they also might be sanctified or set apart in truth. People of God, I, I so want us all to hear the hope in this chapter of the story as it prophesies about Christ, that though brokenness brought 
death. In the great plan of God, the death of Jesus has brought life, has brought hope. And Jesus' prayer for those who are his is that they would be set apart by the truth of his word. And I want you to hear that this very thing was the plan of God from the beginning of time. That David was just a shadow of what is yet to come in Jesus. And then here again in this final chapter of this psalm, that therefore Jesus is trustworthy. God says in Psalm 2 that those who are wise will serve the Lord who saves his people that we will rejoice with him with trembling, that we will kiss the Son, make ourselves vulnerable and in submission to trust Jesus as the one who has come in the midst of brokenness and broad hope, and that ultimately we can take refuge in him, that we find provision in him, that we find protection in him, all as we trust in him. Jesus, in our brokenness, brings hope, and it calls us to a place of trust in him. Now, let's apply that quickly to the practical story of your life. Let's talk about brokenness. I don't know if you have heard, but there is a virus going around. And while I'm not here to cast blame on a nation, nor do I have a grand conspiracy theory of God's judgment of the world, I do recognize, listen, I do recognize that the coronavirus is part of the brokenness of the world in which we live. And for some of us, we have felt the pull through it on our bond with Jesus We felt the pull of it on the cords of his love for us. We have felt the pull of fear that has sometimes dominated our faith. This reality that we live in, not only of the virus itself, but the people's response to the virus as well as to our own isolation, is a part of the brokenness in which we now live in this world. But what does God say to brokenness? How does God respond to brokenness? We've seen it in David's life. We've seen it in Jesus' life. I want us to see it today in our lives, in these days in which we live. It says that God laughs at it. Can I say to you today that God laughs at the coronavirus? Not because it's funny, not because we shouldn't take it seriously, but because it is silly. Listen, it is silly to picture a virus versus our God. As silly as it was for me to fight against Aaron as he held me back. As silly as it is to think of a fly attacking an elephant or a man snatching the sun from the sky. God reminds us that there is a king who sits on the holy hill. A king with a power to crush the enemy, to thwart the virus, and even in this day to teach us valuable lessons in our struggle. This king is Jesus. He is the Son of God who has died to conquer all things, including death. And in this, listen, in this, we find our hope in this struggle. And so therefore, what do we do in this time of isolation? 
in this time of questions and uncertainty. Well, if we are wise, says Psalm 2, we will serve the Lord and we will rejoice with trembling, knowing that he is king. As the Casting Crowns song suggested that we rejoice in him even in the storm, that we praise him in this storm. If we are wise, we'll serve him and rejoice in him, knowing that he is king. And we will kiss the sun, as the psalm says, that we will come to adore Christ, will come to love Christ, and will come to be vulnerable before him, will come in a way of submission to him. We place ourselves in that place of trust in this king who is King Jesus. And we live in faith, people of God. We live in faith as we kiss the sun, not in fear. And we take refuge in him and are blessed. You might say today, how can I be so confident of this in the face of the coronavirus? Well, I'm confident of this King Jesus in the coronavirus because I have seen him at work in my life as King Jesus and many other ways. Uh, In fact, I I can see his great grace, my great hope in the greater story of my life that God has woven. And I trust that he has woven in your life as well. I I see that in the brokenness of my sin that rages against God, the plotting of my pride, the lostness of my lust, that in light of the very things that have made me an enemy of God, that brokenness place that God has set a king upon my heart and now he laughs at sin not because it's funny but because the king has already paid for it if if Aaron was to come it would be again as if I was fighting that fight the reality of my sin will not touch my relationship with Jesus and even in this day God laughs to think such a thing can be true why Because King Jesus has been set upon his holy hill, upon the holy hill of Zion. That the Son of God has come and he has asked for my soul. He has asked for your soul and God has granted him that even as he would grant him all the nations of the earth. Because through Jesus, God has called me to be a son has called us to be sons and daughters. And I know that today I am his, and that today I can ask anything in his name of Jesus, and God promises me that in in him, in Christ the King, according to his will, that anything can be done. So therefore what? Well, therefore I am wise to be his servant. I am wise to rejoice with trembling. And I am wise to kiss his son. I'm wise to adore, to praise, and to worship King Jesus. I am wise to trust him and find my blessing in taking refuge in him. How about you? What is is your place of brokenness? What is the place in your life that things aren't as they ought to be? Can you see people of God, the power of God to give you hope in those places? And are you trusting him for the places that you can't yet figure out? 
Uh, one of the great privileges that I have in my life as your pastor is sharing with great saints, uh, even in these days, the ways that God is moving. Now, Eleanor Johnson doesn't know that she'll be an illustration in today's sermon, but one of my calls this week, and especially to the shut-ins in such a day as this, was to call Eleanor Johnson. And I called to bless her, to pray with her, to care about her, and uh, as always, even when I visit her at St. Paul's, the reality is, is I'm the one who gets the blessing. As I talked to Eleanor this week, this is what she said. Pastor Rick, I tell anybody who's willing to come in this room that I'm not afraid of death, that I'm not afraid of the coronavirus, because I know where I'm going, and I know that King Jesus has me in his hands. That's the testimony today that I pray that you have as well. It's the testimony of David that though things for Eleanor Johnson, it's the realities of, of a number of strokes. It's the reality of uh, isolation in a nursing home. There are lots of things going on against her that, that wage against her. But in all of those things, in all of that brokenness, there is hope because there is a king, the king of Zion, who is placed upon her heart. And so out of that place of hope, there is trust in him. Is that your story? It needs to be. May we all, listen, may we all be intrigued today in a God who has had it all figured out for a very long time. And may we lean into him, find our hope in him, and trust him, even for the things that we're uncertain of in these days of facing a virus. Trust him for the things we do not even yet know. Let's pray. God, help us. And we're grateful for the good news that we find even in the Psalms. We're grateful for the story of David that reflects to the story of Jesus, that applies to the story of our lives, that as we see David in brokenness find hope and indeed trust, that we see Jesus in the midst of our brokenness, giving us hope that we might trust. Help us to do that. Thank you for the faith you've given us, and we pray, indeed, even more for the faith of the things that we are still uncertain of. God, that we might come to adore you, uh, to dance before you, uh, to trust you, to serve you, uh, to kiss you as the Son, to adore you and worship you, and to take refuge in you our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to sing with us our final song, a familiar song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, but with a nice twist that says we are no longer bound by the chains that hold us. We have been indeed set free. It is a gospel message, a gospel story, a gospel story that even comes from Psalm 2 that we've shared together today. Let's worship him.